Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Jeff Brown is Dean of the Geese College of Business at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a role he has had since 2015. Jeff was recognized by Poets and Quants as Dean of the Year in 2021 for taking on a number of transformational projects during his tenure. Obtaining a $150 million naming gift in 2017 from Beth and Larry Geese to rename the college is but one such accomplishment. Yet few of these big projects which Jeff has engaged compare to the colossal transformation that has occurred with Illinois' MBA degree. Starting early in Dean Brown's tenure, he felt an entrepreneurial urge to venture into distance learning. He knew he had strong expertise with his technology specialists within the college. Without a firm business model in mind at first, he felt Illinois had a shot at delivering a new concept. By first calling on top faculty whose voices were highly respected within the college, Jeff formed a small coalition of the willing. With that credibility, the venture began to grow. Out of these early moves, soon developed a credible business model for the Illinois MBA that would deliver high quality education at a very low price point, thus opening up the degree to an otherwise large, untapped market of students. With over 4,000 enrolled in the IMBA, Jeff went a step further and made the difficult decision to close down the college's formerly flagship residential MBA program. In this podcast, we learn more about Jeff's leadership style and how he chose to interact with faculty and staff in making this difficult decision, but nevertheless a decision which has indeed transformed the business school at Illinois. Since the launch of the IMBA, Geese has seen a 40% growth in its faculty, has accelerated its scholarship, and has experienced an overall increase in reputational recognition. It's an exciting story for us all to learn from. Our guest today is Jeff Brown. He's Dean of the Geese uh, College of Business at the University of Illinois. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, thank you. Really great to be able to hear you and to have this conversation. We all look forward to it. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. It's good to see you both. Jeff, you've had... Uh, You've had a remarkable run at uh, Illinois. You've been there for several years prior to taking on the role as dean, and and since then you've just you've just been on a roll with remarkable success. But but one program we'd like to dig into a little deeper today is the IMBA program which you've created. Could you set the stage for us? Why did you go down this pathway of radically transforming? Uh, this traditional, otherwise traditional degree. It's off. Is we've, we've, we as a group have morphed it in different directions, but you guys took a big morph. <laughs> yeah. Take us down that pathway, would you? Sure. I'd be happy to. So, I mean, just to set some basic facts to start with, we launched the program in, in January of 2016. And uh, it has grown from, you know, 110 or 112 students in that first cohort to uh, we're well over 4,300 students in the program today. We've already graduated thousands um, and it's continuing to grow. You know, the best way to understand why we did what we did is to recognize that we take our public land grant mission really seriously. 
So we looked around and, and realized that, you know, Coursera was only a few years old at that time. We had MOOCs, the massive open online courses with them. We started a conversation about whether we could use that platform supplemented with live online sessions to create a degree. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of interest in doing that within the college, but it wasn't clear which degree we wanted to offer. And we ultimately settled on the MBA because it was the best known credential out there from business schools. We felt that the market had frankly gotten way too expensive. You know, we saw a decline in the number of students applying to MBA programs that we thought was driven in large part by the fact that just the value proposition was declining because tuition just kept rising rapidly. As Illinois, we were in a somewhat interesting position to be able to do it because, and Dave, as you know, from having been here in the finance department, our business and revenue model was very diversified. We have a large undergraduate program. We have specialized master's programs. So the MBA itself was never a huge part of our financial model. So we felt we could take a risk that maybe some other schools couldn't. And it was also the case that while we had a lot of pride in our MBA program, when you looked at rankings, it was not uh, at the level we wanted it to be. Um, most of our programs are our top programs. And, you know, our MBA it was in the top 50, but barely. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't sort of good enough for, for what we wanted. And so we thought we'd give it a go. And um, it has exceeded beyond our wildest dreams, so much so that by 2019, we decided to go ahead and really concentrate our resources uh, in the MBA space on the online program. And we made the difficult decision, or I made the difficult decision to actually bring our face-to-face programs to an end. Uh, it was a controversial decision at the time, uh, but I, I think it was the right one. Of course, we had no idea that six months later, we'd hear about this little virus called COVID floating around in uh, China that would suddenly make our decision to make these investments in online really pay off in ways we hadn't intended. So that's a little bit of the background and, and kind of the why. I mean, it, it was really, I tell people all the time, we didn't do this to maximize profits. We did this to maximize our mission. And we did so by making a price point that was affordable to people all over the world. And they've responded with uh, tremendous demand. With 4,300 people in the program, do you have that same touch or are you able to, how do you create that cultural dynamic that has been a traditional part of the Illinois program? It's actually been uh, phenomenal. I mean, we had some concerns early on about how well we'd be able to create the sense of culture and the networking and so forth. Fortunately, in large part, because the the earliest cohorts really invested themselves into it, we've created an amazing cohort in culture. And, you know, our satisfaction in the program is as higher, higher than any other program we've ever offered. A lot of it has to do with the fact that it's not just um, asynchronous material. This is not like watching Netflix. It's, it's like what we're doing right now. We're having a conversation and, and we take our very best faculty. We didn't go out and hire part-time folks or adjuncts or so forth. We took our leading research faculty. We put them in the classroom or in the studio, I should say. And uh, while there is a lot of pre-recorded content, uh, every week that the class is in session, those faculty are there delivering live sessions. They do it multiple times a day. 
And so students have the option, depending on time zones and availability of, of when to tune in. And then all of those live sessions are also recorded. So if people can't attend one, they can watch it later. And we have a whole, you know, every professor who sort of leads the course, and in some cases it's co-led by multiple faculty. We also provide them with an associate instructor, which is another member of the faculty, typically a um, non-tenure track faculty member who helps to manage the course assistance and so forth. So there's a whole team effort behind this. The faculty member really owns the intellectual ideas and, and designs the course, but you know we have instructional designers and videographers. I mean, when we, when we offer our class, there's dozens of people now involved in teaching it uh, in terms of mo most of whom you never see in the background. But the faculty still really is responsible for the, the, the overall content. But that engagement with each other uh, has actually been really valuable. I mean, one of the things we found, I mean, imagine I used to teach in our MBA program. And if I was in a class with 60 students and two students off here on the side were having a sidebar conversation, it was kind of disruptive to the class, right? And you might try to get them to, to quiet down so that you could maintain the conversation. Well, on Zoom or other tools that we use, if they're having a sidebar conversation in the chat and it's about the class, we have people monitoring that chat. They can actually throw it out and say, hey, Dave, you know, so-and-so made this great point over here. You might want to talk about it. And they can actually bring those sidebar conversations in into the overall conversation. So it's been enormously valuable. You know, Jeff, we've admired uh, not only the uh, bets you've made, but the timing of the bets you've made. Um, would love to hear you unpack a little bit sort of how you modeled this, sort of how you did you benchmark or, you know, use others, sort of how did you come to the conclusions and how did you lay down the business plan, if you will? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, um, look, I'm an economist and and I teach finance. And I think a lot about the way we normally do in a rigorous ways about this stuff, but this was an entrepreneurial venture. And so like many entrepreneurs, it was less of a business plan and more of a, we have a vision and we think this thing could really pay off. And so in the early days, we're not going to overly constrain it and overly analyze it. We're just going to keep investing and growing this thing to prove out the model and then we'll worry later about how to rationalize all the pieces. And that's what we did. So we, we carved out a very small team early on. Um, people like Raj Eshambadi, who is now the president of IIT here in Illinois. He was an associate dean at the time. Norma Scagnoli was leading our e-learning team. Arshad Syed, who's now in a leadership position at Northeastern University. John Tubbs, our video guy. I mean, this group came together, very small group, and, and along with the, the, the early faculty members really designed and helped put this whole thing together. And honestly, early on, we were just throwing resources at it. I, I was like, whatever you need, you have, right? And, um, and we'll sort this out later. So then a couple of years in, when we saw the enormous growth, that's when we then really stepped back and said, okay, now how do we you know, make sure this is on a sustainable path that, you know, only a few years in, we got to the point where annually we we were cash flow positive. We started recouping some of those early investments we made. And it didn't take long for this to become, you know, profitable in the sense of not only sustaining itself, but also contributing to the to the overall mission of the college and supporting other things that we do. So it was, it required a different mindset. Right. And we were in the fortunate position that my predecessors as dean 
uh, Larry DeBrock and Vijay Ghosh before that and so forth had had left the school in a pretty good financial position. So we had some reserves that I was able to make those investments. And so my first few years as dean, at a time when the state of Illinois wasn't passing budgets and money was tight and so forth, we were digging into reserves to make these investments, but they they certainly paid off. And it was honestly, it was just a, it was a sense that we were onto something big and we had a clear vision and it was consistent with our mission. And we knew we could figure out the detailed financial models and business plans later. And that might sound a little, you know, off equilibrium for how colleges normally operate, but I think it was absolutely the right mindset that we needed to have in order to do something disruptive. Jeff, take us through the, um, the, the political dynamic of, you know, once you have proof of concept, okay, that's great. But walk us through that journey that you had to take with several hundred people to say, okay, we're not only are we going to do this, but, but we're going <laughs> to, we're going to completely transform that. That just had to be a stressful conversation. It was a lot of stressful conversation. <laughs> yeah. Walk us through that from the, you know, how did you approach it? You know, and how did you move it? That's called leadership, by the way. Yeah, I didn't know that. No, that's right. And, and, and obviously, you know, a lot of people are involved in those conversations. But I mean, just to give you a sense of how sometimes history can hinge on, you know, small changes is when we took the IMBA program to the Educational Policy Committee of the Urbana Senate, the Faculty Senate, it passed that committee by a single vote. Oh, my God. <laughs> um there were folks, not from business, but there were folks from across campus that objected to it. You know, they had a University of Phoenix in mind that this was somehow not going to be high quality or that uh, it, it was against what we had done for, you know, 150 years on our campus or for hundreds of years uh, in education. Uh, there was a gentleman on there who uh, was comparing us to the the media industry and how online destroyed local newspapers. And I, so, so there was resistance to it. We got it done. And then to be honest with you, after that, the success started to speak for itself. Within the college, we didn't have as much resistance. We had some, but it started as what I call a coalition of the willing, which was we were able to get some lead faculty who were very prominent, highly respected folks who were willing to give it a shot. So we started right out of the gate with very strong quality signals when we had some of our best endowed chairs and so forth willing to teach in the program. And as it grew and as the story started to emerge about how much the students loved the program, how happy they were, the way it was changing their lives, it just kind of, it, it was like the pond and, or, or the rock in the pond, and it just started to ripple out and more and more people were willing to come on board. You know, the next round of difficulty came when I made the decision to concentrate resources on the online program and bring our residential program to an end. Uh, that was not a popular decision either. But, you know, in that case, what I, what I did is I literally, inside geese, I sat down with every single faculty member that taught in the program and explained the rationale and why we did what we were doing um, so that they knew this was not just some willy-nilly decision, but it was strategic, it was well thought out, um, and so forth. And so 
not everybody was thrilled about it, but nobody put up a fight. So, you know, that's that's where we are. It was no doubt it was risky. I mean, it was risky as an institution. It was risky for me personally. This could have turned out very differently if uh, if faculty had, you know, risen up and, and called for my head. But that's not what happened. And I think in part, I mean, as you know, Dave, I'd been at the university 13 years before I became dean. I, I, I think I had the confidence of, of the faculty that what we were trying to do was not completely crazy. And now it's just generated nothing but enthusiasm and excitement because we are viewed as a school that's on the move. Resources are much greater than they were before. We're hiring lots of faculty. We've grown our faculty by 40% in the last seven years. And that generates enormous excitement and enthusiasm among the faculty because it energizes the research agenda and everything else. So yeah, I've got scars, <laughs> but I also have a smile on my face. So well, good for you. That's great. Jeff, often um, rankings are sort of the unspoken anxiety. And of course, you know, part of the um, reality is that MBA programs generally drive uh, rankings. How or did uh, rankings come into the consideration and how did you how'd you deal with that? Well, there's a couple of ways to answer that. Uh, that was one of the big concerns that folks had when we decided to close our residential MBA programs because our IMBA online program, we had not yet chosen to have ranked. And ultimately we decided not to participate in the rankings with that program. So I'll come back to that. But, you know, my view was that when we had an undergraduate program that was, you know, around number 20 in the country at the time and an MBA that was in the high 40s, it was not really contributing positively to our reputation and may have actually been a reputational drag, even though we thought it was a high quality program. So we were willing to take that risk. It was a calculated risk, but we were willing to take it. And then the decision, the separate decision not to participate in the online rankings was a result of the fact that we felt that they weren't measuring the right things, that largely the online MBA rankings had just ported over the criteria from the in-person programs. And that's kind of like saying, hey, we're going to take the you know, car and driver uh, ranking criteria for pickup trucks and we're going to apply it to the Tesla and oh, look, the Tesla doesn't look that great. <laughs> you know, it's like, it doesn't make sense. It was designed for something altogether different. You know, for us, scale was a good thing. It was part of our missions. Large class sizes are not a bad thing. Um, it, it was those kind of factors that were just like, I don't want to be beholden to a set of rankings that aren't measuring what we set out to do. And so we just decided not to participate in them. And the good news is it hasn't, it doesn't appear to have mattered much of a lick the news coverage that we get from this program, the reputation it has, the awards that it has received, I think speak volumes about the quality of the program. Our students in the program are our greatest ambassadors. I mean, I, my, my LinkedIn account is filled up every day with posts from grateful students and alums. And that's really powerful. I will tell you, you know, the IMBA is not the only thing we've done, but in terms of any halo effect of rankings, we've actually, if you look at our undergraduate rankings, we've moved substantially in the, in the positive direction. We've gone from around number 20 to around number 12 uh, in both U.S. News and Poets and Quants. And I think that's because people are recognizing the excellence and the innovation we have here. 
so I, I think it's driven by reputation, not by rankings per se. Uh, again, another risk that we took, uh, but one that I think was was absolutely uh, the right thing to do. Again, you you say you're at about 4,300 students. Is is there a cap? Are you ca capacity constrained by the, your faculty size, or is this are you on a juggernaut mission here? So I'm going to give the same answer I've given every year since we launched the program, which is we don't have any artificial or arbitrary caps, but we're unwilling to grow beyond our ability to deliver an outstanding experience. And as long as we can deliver an outstanding experience, we're open to continue to grow. Right. What we have found is that every time we have grown, like when we went from 100 students to 170 and then to 275, you know, in different cohorts, each time we grew, we had different challenges. Early on, a lot of them were technical challenges. Like, you know, way back in the day, the Zoom licenses were only so big. You could only have so many people on a video at a time. Um, there were issues with various platforms we were using. We've solved those. Then we had to solve, as, as classes got bigger, we then had to reinvent our teaching model. And that's where this idea of an associate instructor came in, where every, every faculty member that was teaching a class would have another faculty member who was kind of helping them and managing the army of course assistants and so forth. Where we're at now is a different challenge, which is how do we do high quality grading and assessment at large scale for qualitative courses. You know, the traditional way to do that was smaller courses, teaching a strategy class. You want people to take concepts they've learned, apply them to a company. You have them write essays, right? Well, grading a lot of essays, you know, you could have a course with a thousand students in it that becomes very difficult. Now, it's interesting. We're all going to have to figure this out anyway. AI is writing essays for people. So essay writing is no longer going to be a particularly good way of assessing learning outcomes because uh, you can type in a five-word prompt into a, a, a website and it will spit out an essay on, on, on a topic of your choice. And they're pretty good. <laughs> Not great, but they're good enough to be a starting point. So we're also exploring AI solutions to grading and assessment, assurance of learning, things like that. But the trick is how do we do it at scale? If we can solve that problem, then as long as the demand's there, we can continue to scale. This program at the scale we're running, you know, we it's very low price, so our margins are very small. But at the scale that we're operating, uh, we're able to finance all that faculty growth that we've had. Even though the margins are small, they get a little bit bigger as the class continues to grow, right? Because a fair amount of the costs are fixed. And so, you know, I challenge our team all the time to be thinking in terms of whatever the next order of magnitude is, not necessarily because we have a goal to get there, but because if you don't, you know, when we were serving hundreds of students, I said, what would it take us to get to 10,000? Not because I wanted to get to 10,000, but because you need to identify well, what would all the problems be if we were trying to operate at that scale. Let's start working on solving those problems now so that we have the ability to grow there. So now I'm really talking crazy and I'm often saying, what would it take for us to reach 100 million people? You know, just how do we think differently about the whole model? 
if you put your economist hat back on and, and, and think about the nature of the business, is there room for multiple programs around the country to migrate in this direction? Or is it going to be uh, a handful of providers? Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, I've actually been surprised that the only school that has really followed our model so far has been Boston University, the Question School, who has a similar price point. They're a little bit above us, but it's it's uh, a modest difference. And they're smaller than we are, but they're, they are growing fast as well. I don't think that we could have hundreds of schools working at this scale because there just aren't that many students at least currently interested in an MBA, although demand curve slowed down. And what we have found that when you're at a $22,000 price point, instead of a $220,000 price point, there's a lot more students all around the world that are interested in getting an MBA. So I think we've grown the market, but we've probably not grown it enough that we can have hundreds of schools each having 5,000 students, right? So I do think um, what, what we're actually finding so far is that there are schools are, diff, uh, are, are planting themselves in different places. There are now hundreds of online and hybrid programs, but most of them have not done anything disruptive on the pricing front at all. I mean, Wharton is offering an online program, but it's like $200,000. And honestly, I, I don't understand that. I mean, so there are lots of schools doing it. One of the interesting things we have found, we as an industry, is that even in online programs, there's still a local geographic bias. So if you look at North Carolina, which has a good online program, a very expensive one, but it's high quality as well. Um, you know, they draw from, I don't know, 150 miles around them. The same is true with a lot of places. Ours is also has a geographic bias, but not nearly to the same extent, because at our price point, we are accessible to students from all over the world in countries where people could normally not even think about getting a U.S. degree. Whereas at 20,000 U.S. dollars or 23,000 U.S. dollars, it becomes feasible for folks. I'm not, I'm not going to try to predict the future here, but I, I think there's going to be you know, a handful of large-scale, low-price players, and then everybody else is going to stick with high prices and try to figure out how to differentiate themselves, which is going to be hard. It's going to be hard for them to do that. Well, Jeff, this has been a terrific conversation. We could go on. I really, really have enjoyed it. Uh, it's been enlightening. We commend you for your both your entrepreneurial uh, initiative, but also the success of it. It's really, really great. Well, I appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely, Jeff. Congratulations. It's, it just is, uh, it's just amazing how you're moving things along. And I'll just say stay tuned because we have a lot more innovations uh, in the pipeline that will be coming along in the months and years ahead. Sounds, like a, uh, sounds like a teaser if I've ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Awesome. Great. Good. Nice to see you. Bye-bye. Thank yeah. you. Bye. That was very, very interesting. Yeah, I was fascinated by that. What I, and we didn't touch on it too long, but I really appreciated his approach to dealing with the faculty. He said, words to the effect of, he sat down with every member of the, uh, the daytime programs who would have been affected by this and without an agenda per se, but really kind of, he treated them like human beings. And yeah. I, I think yeah. that that is just so critical today 
there's such a particularly in a big college like uh, like you have at uh, at Keese there. There's a lot of layers between the top of the organization and the and sometimes the bottom. And I think taking the time to walk the hallways and drink the coffee and that's how you get it done, I think. And uh, kudos to him for taking that human approach to this problem. I was particularly fascinated with his uh, ability to sort of see, have a vision mm -hmm. and then think very humanly about how to achieve that vision. I right. mean, the, the, the idea of being an entrepreneur in a culture that is around shared governance mm -hmm. is not contradictory. Right. It's perceived to be contradictory, mm -hmm. but it, in fact, it takes doing it right. And doing it right means not forcing your way, having a vision, and then allowing that vision to, to emerge. And I think that in this case, because of the platform and the delivery, having uh, faculty get comfortable mm -hmm. with how do you deliver at scale when scale is not really you know their first motivator, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it took a real human touch. That's right. That's right. I also think, you know, as we think about how does this apply to other organizations, it was interesting that his perception was that the the daytime MBA degree, uh, and he was very candid saying, well, you know, we're very proud of it, but truth be told, it's not a it's not a top top 10, top 20 program. And because of that, it gives us the a degree of freedom to try to do something about it. If I think about a Harvard or a Wharton, yeah. a Kellogg, th that kind of innovation with the flagship product might, you know, there might be a stumbling block there. But for a lot of our, you know, for a lot of us who are outside of of that quote unquote top, you know, the fifteen schools in the top ten. This kind of innovation might be something that uh, that we could think about. Yeah, I mean, in a way, they use their history mm -hmm. not to deny it, right. but to but to alter. What a what a and great story! Really, really terrific. Yeah, and and we will stay tuned. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that if there was a teaser, that was it. That was a great uh, <laughs> a great eye opener. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, Please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.